0: Hi, friends. Welcome back. This is Trent Kugler, Production Manager at the Contemporary American Theater Festival.
1: And Gabby Tokatch, that's me, the Public Relations Manager for the festival.
0: And you found your way to our new podcast, Unmuted.
1: On CATF's quest to produce and develop new American theater, we have started this new podcast series to connect you to the CATF artist and their art. Trent and I just had a cupcake to celebrate the first episode, but for the second episode, Trent, what do we have on the agenda?
0: So this time we're going to do something a little bit different. You'll once again hear from Teresa M. Davis as she interviews Mixolydia Tyler, who plays Officer Amina Duckett in the audio drama version of Sheepdog, and immediately following that interview, Teresa is going to speak with Amina, the character, about her life experiences and worldviews. But before we hear from Mixolydia and Teresa, CATF would like to acknowledge that we perform and thrive on the ancestral lands of the Massawamnak tribe. We recognize that this land on which we stand was also a resource for water, trading, and travel for many First Nations people, including the Seneca and the Delaware.
1: We would also like to take this moment to ask you to stand with us in solidarity with our BIPOC and AAPI artists and communities, and to take daily action to fight racism and oppression.
0: As always, we want to thank Marjorie Weingold, who is the series sponsor for the Sheepdog Unmuted podcasts.
1: Marjorie, you deserve all of the cupcakes, all of the scones, all of the cakes, all of the baked goods. Thank you so much for your support in this series. And after listening to this episode, you can learn even more about Kevin Artie's sheepdog with a dramaturgical guide that Teresa Davis actually created, and some video interviews. Trent and I will drop those in the show notes. And now, may I present. The Amazing Teresa Davis interviewing Mixa Lydia Tyler and her character, Amina. Good evening and hello.
2: I'm Teresa Davis, and some of you might be returning to this PlayCast Plus series, and if so, you had an opportunity on July 10th to spend time with the playwright and director of CATF's audio play production of Sheepdog, Kevin Artigue and Melissa Crespo. And today we have two more guests from the sheepdog universe. Um, our first is a talented stage, screen, and sonic sphere actress, Mixa Lydia Tyler. <laughs> Hello, Mixa Lydia. How are you? Hello, Teresa. I'm well. Thank you. I love that introduction. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Now, do you prefer Mixolydia or do you prefer Mixie? Mixie is fine. All right, Mixie. And I love how you spell it, M-Y-X-Y. Mm. Yeah. All right, do you know Do you know any other Mixolydias? You
3: know, I don't, but it's very funny. I have a, very, a, a small group of friends who were like, Nick Cannon just tried to take your name because he just <laughs> had... <laughs> He just had a t- <laughs> twin babies, and so he uh, named one of the sons, I think the middle name is Mixolydian, because that's where my name comes from. It's uh, a musical scale or a mode, and my father was a musician, and that was his favorite mode, and so I was named Mixolydia, so he you know, changed it around, but Nick Cannon just kept it Mixolydian. And oh. so I'm gonna give him that. I'm gonna and it's spelled a little differently, so I'm gonna let him have it.
2: Okay, but... don't tell him. Don't tell him. Get don't get too close. Don't get. Right. right. I love that you are the only. I love that you are the only. <laughs> and I also love that you're taking time to chat with us today. Thank you Thank so you. much. So how is life? I hear you are going through a lot of transitions right now.
3: Oh yeah, uh, a lot of moving around, but. I ultimately will say that in this time, I'm thankful for the slowdown. I'm thankful mm. for space to reflect and to get ready for whatever's coming next because there's always a next.
2: That is so true. And I love that you said time to reflect. Has this pandemic time been a place for you where you could just step back and collect your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I I, I would say in twenty nineteen. I had lost my father, and so that was the beginning of me just kind of feeling like I needed time. And then it came in the form of uh, COVID, and and I was able and fortunate to quarantine with people that I loved. And it gave us some time to collectively mourn and take the time that we needed as well as to heal and rest because we had not done that in that, in that year before. And we just kind of, I, I know for me personally, I kept moving through and was working actually during that time, uh, working on two different shows. And so this was needed. And so as an artist, I, you know, it was hard Uh, to not have work and to not have things to keep my creativity busy, but I also was tired and I needed the rest. And so the work that did come as a result of it was definitely from a more centered and rested place (laughs) than it was previously.
2: Yes, and you are definitely working. In twenty twenty you did the role of Berta, Alberta in Angelica Cherie's Birdie Berta, and you probably know this, that it had its world premiere at the Contemporary American Theater Festival. I don't know if you do with friends
3: of mine. I love them. talented yes um, Bianca, B-
2: Bianca
3: <laughs> yes yeah I I definitely was I was a part of the workshop before it came to CATF at Florida rep and I was very excited to hear that the show was getting a life, a full life at the festival and, and it's continued to change. And this production was very different from (laughs) what she originally had created and that I had read. And so I just enjoy her writing so much and I'm excited to see what's coming next. She has a show coming to Broadway.
2: Yes.
3: In 2022. So that is so
2: exciting. Oh, I definitely am. And that must've been, Really exciting for you to get a chance to see the changes in Berto Berto. Do you enjoy doing new works and doing the new work process?
3: I love it. Mm. I got a taste of doing new works with Kiara Alegria-Hoodies. She wrote a play called Barrio Girl while we were at Brown together. Mm. And I got to do that play and to be able to sit at a table in a, you know, it's got to be a specific type of environment, but definitely when egos aren't on the table and when a writer and a director have a really great synergy and know when to talk to the actors as collaborators and when to let us as you know characters kind of feel our way through some some developing work and developing words, it's so fun for me. It's it's so much about what I love about acting and storytelling. Um, mm. the level of agency we all have as a team to create a story and you know someone says oh this moment needs this and and maybe it's not on the page about how that's going to happen and we together kind of are the first ones to think through that. I love problem solving in that way. It's really, you know, I, I work in critical thinking and then I and I love that kind of work.
2: Would you tell the listeners a little bit about your process in developing a role?
3: Sure. I I I really enjoy not having too many things figured out. Without being present with everybody who's going to put it together, so mm. part of my process is I I do, especially if it's stuff that I I am very it's very much outside of myself. I will do a little bit of research. I'll, I'll maybe read a little bit for understanding, but I don't really speak the words aloud of the play until I get in the room. So the first table read is really where whatever is hitting me or coming through me in the moment, I um. I allow that to happen. Like the first table read is really valuable to me to learn some things about the world and the character that I'm playing. And then from there, I really do, I love dramaturgy. I love dramaturgs. (laughs) I think they're so important. And so I really- (laughs) uh, I love
2: that you say that. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you.
3: (laughs) I really uh, value and I take all of the information and packets and things that have been created and I take that home with me. That's my first kind of really kind of delving into to studying of the play.
2: And in terms of storytelling, when you decided to make acting your career, was it a shock to your family or did you know or did they know that this would be your journey at an early age?
3: I think it was definitely for my mom. Okay. My dad, so, so let me backtrack. Both my parents are very arts based and creative. My mother is a singer, she sang oh. and wanted to be a classical singer, and is, that has is lived out through my younger sister, who is an amazing mm-hmm. opera singer and has her own music oh. studio in Virginia and mm-hmm. has sang at the Capitol and has sang at many different places and is continuing to pursue performance as well as a music educator. But my parents, they like poured all this arts appreciation into us and wanted us to be well-rounded in that way. And then when I shifted gears, when I was about to graduate UVA, my mother was just like, well, that's not stable. That's not. Oh, (laughs) So it was really funny because she loved that I was acting. She loved, because I was doing little things here and there all throughout my time in school and even in high school. And then my dad loved it he was just like you know you should be doing more of that but I you know I always thought that it was a hobby for me Mm -hmm. and I really took a hard left my junior year at UVA and so I I just felt like if I didn't try then I would not my personality would not uh, let me try later in life So, because I'm very practical so I'm I'm such a thinker I was just like this is the time I have the resources I have people who can support me like I can't just go to New York that doesn't make any sense that's impractical but I can you know use the studios at UVA talk to my teachers and so I really backed myself into a corner because I didn't give myself a lot of time I was like if it's gonna happen it's gonna happen I got Mm -hmm. a semester I took a semester and created like a whole Whole, you know, thing. I had I had no headshots before. I got headshots. I had my monologue book. I built everything in a semester. And then I only auditioned for three schools
2: okay. and got into Brown. That's amazing. My, my mother's side of the family is from Virginia. You are from Virginia. Um, how do you think that growing up in Virginia, in the South, has shaped you as a person and as an artist?
3: Uh, I definitely believe that that state has a lot of history Mm -hmm. that (laughs) it carries for better or for worse. And, um, and for me, the, what it get, the blessing it gave me was, um, a deep connection to the land and to my elders. Um, my family were sharecroppers and, stayed close to each other, um, you know, for the most part, especially on my mom's side. And they all still are in Southwestern Virginia um, through, uh, I would say like Martinsville, Bassett, Danville area. So very s- s- Southern and yes. the opportunity to grow up around family and in that area in that time gave me a lot of stories, gave me a lot of people. Um, that Mm. as I grew up and thought that was the norm, realized that that was not the norm, that people didn't, um, necessarily have that deep of a connection to community like I had. Mm. Um, and that, you know, my parents had access to and, and used and kept us connected to. And, um, I would say that as I've gotten older, what I, you know, the things I carry with me that you know, definitely shaped me as a storyteller and as a and as a performer, um, was that, you know, being growing up in the South, definitely I was not blinded. There was I'm I, you know, I was in school and I would meet people like, oh, you know, I just I never knew that racism or that this was a thing until I became a lot older and I was like
0: mm, <laughs> Oh, I yes. saw I mean it
3: was very clear, um, very early. And I was very aware and, um, even within my own um, family. And so that, you know, that awareness, I would say was hard to live through, but it also shaped me into the, like I said, the actor, the storyteller, the activist that I am, um, I mean, I was a part of a, a organization in high school. It was all about dismantling racism. Like that was my high school oh, training. Yes. <laughs> we did train. It was called lead. It was actually through the Rotary Club it was a woman, uh, Marty Woodward started this company and it was too radical for the Rotary. So she like left them. So it was one year was part of the Rotary organization. The next year she had created her own company and we were, she was like, I am, she was committed to training young people and learning how to dismantle racism and, and racial bias. And, um, that was that, that time in my life was invaluable. It taught me so much at a young age because it was so much you know our our our, our existence and living in Virginia, um, so so much a part of um what we experienced and you know the desire she 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 literally recruited and looked for and interviewed students who had a desire to speak up and to speak out about the inequities they were seeing in their schools and in their communities, and I was oh, a part of that.
2: That is powerful. That yeah. is so powerful. Um, so as you were speaking, Mixie, I could hear <laughs> yeah. of the sirens. Where where are you right now?
3: <laughs> I'm in <laughs> Brooklyn, New York, in Bed-Stuy. Ah, is this
2: where you're calling home these days?
3: I've been in bed. Yes, I've been in style since 2008. So
2: ah, they say home is where the heart is. Do you find that that's where your heart is, or do you long to be someplace else?
3: You know, it's funny. I think for a while. I was Virginia. It was always Virginia, but I have such a deep community here. And this is not to say that I don't think I can't create it somewhere else, but I definitely, this is home.
2: Home. Well, Amina Duckett in Sheepdog, she was born in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Do you think that the two of you share any similarities, even though you were born in very different regions of the country? What things do you feel you have in common with Amina, and what things do you think are the major differences when you were exploring the character for the audio play?
3: Yes, I do believe. Well, I've been to Cleveland. I have friends from Cleveland. One of my really close friends is a voice and speech teacher. Um, born and raised in Cleveland and oh, wow. um her name is Megan Prawl and That's she, right, you
2: mentioned her. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was
3: such a great resource during this uh process. We met at Brown and she was like she would crack me up. She was like, Please girl, people in Ohio just are, are southern black people <laughs> 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 who sound a little bit like they're from the Midwest at times. <laughs> like, it's true. It's know. true. It was so funny to me. So I think that there's that Southern sensibility is, is something that me and the character Amina definitely share, um, as well as an awareness of their place in this in society very early. I toured a lot um, throughout Ohio, and I've been uh, into Columbus as well as Cincinnati, especially Cincinnati. And being in those, I was like, this is like being in the South, but not and mm-hmm. <laughs> and i was kind of surprised at that uh, because i, I those were my first kind of experiences in in ohio was on tour and i think that the the and and part of that was because of my awareness of like there was a huge especially in cincinnati, when i was in cincinnati um poor black community And I was surprised. I guess my idea was a little different. I was, because I grew up watching WKRP in Cincinnati. And I was like, Cincinnati is a great city. Like, (laughs) they have revolutionary radio and people are, you know, I'm I'm a child of that. (laughs) (laughs) So to see Cincinnati up close and Cleveland as well, different parts of the state, I, I, I saw my state in different, you know, in different ways reflected. And so in there, I think we share experience. Um, differences I feel like are from myself and the character are her way of coping with racism is different than mine or, or her, um, I should say approach. I don't know what necessarily I would call it coping, but her way of kind of learning how to, be in the world, you know, Mm -hmm. is, is different for me, uh, you know, creativity and, um, building community was important to me, uh, and became a lot of the center of who I am and the work that I do. And I think that the character Amina decides that creating order, in the midst of that chaos and having a logical way of dealing with inequity that she sees through the law is, is the way to combat that. And, um, and, and, and that's a difference, you know, for me, that's a hard decision. And I, even though I have lots of military and police in my family, um, I see them struggle. I see the dissonance, the cognitive dissonance that they deal with. And I don't envy it. <laughs> no,
2: it's, no, I understand. I understand that. Mm-hmm. There's a quote I love by Maya Angelou, though, mm, Dr. Maya. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Uh, I'd like to know when you were at the table and reading the script for the first time and making discoveries about the character, how did Amina make you feel?
3: I would say that hearing her words, he made me feel a longing. There seemed to be Mm, this longing. longing. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, because I think there's this longing in her. I believe that it was not happenstance that she, you know, gets involved in this relationship and with Ryan, with the person yes. that he is. And I Who's think. Who's also that- a police officer. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so I think that from the beginning, there's just this, this longing of, of wanting to have something of her own. That's not, that's n- not tainted by the reality of her world.
2: Mm. Oh,
3: and I, I, f- I, felt that I felt that. And so it was easy to kind of want the, the way the story was in, unfolding and the words I started to, for me, try to find that, um, that sense of longing Um, but that was the feeling that was the initial feeling that I felt. And just this, even from the beginning, like this longing for, um, for things to be okay, for it not to be what she knows it is, right. To, to, to being able to have this love that Mm -hmm. was not marred by everything around her. Mm -hmm. You know,
2: that's a powerful observation, Both Melissa Crespo, the director, and Kevin Artigue, the playwright, have mentioned the love story Mm -hmm. in Sheepdog. What aspects of Amina and Ryan's relationship do you find most compelling?
3: Their level of honesty was Mm -hmm. very compelling. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: That even though in the most ugly moments of this play, they do, you know, there's a level of genuine love and respect to just be, to still be honest, even when it's hard. Um, I think that there's hiding that happens because in the moment, you know, I I don't want to lose the person that I love. So I'm hiding, but there's still never like like it doesn't last like it's 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 not sustainable and i don't think it is because he's a bad liar or that she's not a, that she's a bad liar i think it's really cuz they love each other so much and have experienced dishonesty in their own lives that they want this to be a space and a love that can be honest and so when the person you love really asks you you know what happened like what you know what? And even with her early on, he's honest with her and says, I, I don't you know, like it when you forget me or forget things mm-hmm. or, you know, put this on the back burner and and prioritize other things. And she's honest with him and says, well, this is why, you know, I I don't know how to do these things, you know, that that they're able to have those honest exchanges and be vulnerable. And that's something that I valued. Uh, and and that I hope we we found those genuine moments, and it was not, you know, this is not someone who's crazy in love. This is someone who has a real, honest love, and and wants and longs for that.
2: Mm, that is powerful, and you do communicate that. And Mixie, you did so in such a short amount of time. Would you talk to the listeners? Would you share with us what it is like to do this in what a six day period? Is yeah.
3: That- <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, well, you know, being in quarantine gave me a lot of time <laughs> and space to sit with it, and we i mean c a t f was so gracious in giving us so much time to just read and hear the words and rehear the words and maybe go back and um, because that was also a lot of a part of it too, is really kind of getting this the soundscape of this play right. And so for me, a process was really, I, I did a lot of outside of our own rehearsals, just reading through things and recording myself and then hearing oh. it back. Um, because again, the gift of COVID, I have a whole studio now in my house <laughs> 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 with lighting and sun and you oh, know, some mics and stands. <laughs> and so I have this microphone, I've been doing a lot of voiceover stuff at home and um so I just I was like well I have the time I have the equipment um and so I would just kind of go back and try to hear and hit certain moments that we got notes on and just rework those things for myself as well as I definitely employed all of my resources my friend Megan as well as my voice and speech teacher from school from Brown Mm -hmm. Tom Jones who's wonderful I'm going to give him a a huge shout out because he's, he just coached Andre Day in her performance of Billy Holiday. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's Mm, him. Well done. He's amazing. (laughs) So I would just ask him questions, you know, like just text messaging, like, Hey, if I was doing this, Um, so I definitely, um, uh, it, there was a definitely a community behind me helping as well. And then there's a level of when, you know, you have a little bit of time and I, Ryan and I joked about this, but it was just like, you just got to trust yourself. Mm-hmm. You just have to believe that w- what's in you is what, is needed for this role and needed for this process. And so you don't have to put on a bunch of extra or look at what you don't have, look at what you do have and ride that out till the wheels fall off till they tell you it's wrong <laughs> and and do that with confidence. So I had to kind of put the judge, inner judge inside of me to the side and and trust.
2: Mm, yes, and trust. because Were there moments that when you said you had to put certain things aside, I want to ask you what drew you to the script, and at times, what made you maybe a little hesitant about delving into the work.
3: Oh, definitely. Well, like I said, I reserve. I, you know, I read it and I knew the in my mind, but I had not read it aloud. And so when I sat down at the table and we did that first read, you know, my mind was like, "Ooh, okay." we're, we're, we're really going to tell this part of the story. And, you know, my first kind of uh, like nervousness was there have been other plays um, that I'll go on and mention that have, you know, tried to address this in different ways that, that haven't always been in line with my belief system as a person. And I was like, I don't want to hate this character or overjudge or be, but it wasn't that. And so, and I, and what was so exciting was that this play definitely rides that line of um, here is a situation, and this situation is the framework to talk about how we love and 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 live in as human beings mm. in, in in an issue that is so painful. How do people? How do we? How do we find humanity in the midst of all of that? And uh, I, I love those kind of stories. And so when I saw that that's the dance, the nuance that this play was doing it drew me to that, because, you know, a play that's just so issue heavy become mm-hmm. can be just, a you know, a hammer beating someone mm-hmm. over the head. And I didn't want that to happen. And I didn't want this to not feel like a real black woman either, because. I think there's there's fantasies or a fantasized way to talk about interracial relationships that we see in television and film and movies and stories in general. And not necessarily do they all kind of connect or kind of deal with the real issues that are faced by people, humans who live this life and, and have relationships and live in this world. Because I don't think it's that the relationship is the problem. They're people. These are two people who love each other. It is the system in the world that we exist in that makes that difficult. And so how do we navigate that? And I think this play genuinely presents that issue.
2: Mm. Oh, I would agree. I would agree. Ooh, Mixie, I could just talk to you for hours and hours, but we have to transition to part two. But I do want to ask you one last question, and it's based on a segment of the play, a dialogue, when Amina says, don't be sorry, you didn't create the world. And Ryan responds, yeah, but maybe I could do more to change it. So my question to you is, what changes would you make to the world if you could?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: There's so many things, but I think in this current season of my life, I feel as if access to information and resources that I feel as if that that's become kind of this way of keeping people locked in their minds about what they're capable of, about their pasts and their histories and for me I just want I, if I could change anything I just would like for people to know who they are, where they come from, and what they're capable of. I think that so many times because of our circumstances and our and our experiences, we've been given a false narrative of who we are, where we've come from, what we're capable of. And 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 the love that is within us and the capacity to love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that information is powerful. And I just, you know, I, I would like to be you know, the mouthpiece for that. And so part of the work and, and, you know, my personal life is what I do is just like, if I can connect people to resources and to people who can help them get to where they want to go, I want to be a part of that
1: mm-hmm. because I don't yes. think that's.
3: Being, feeling limited or feeling like, oh, this thing that I want to do, but I don't have access or see someone, you know, doing what I f- think is my calling or, you know, in my life, living that around me that I don't think it's possible. And I think that that's not true, A, and that there are, needs to be more clear access to, to ways of living out your purpose. I mm. think. A lot of people have been living out their responsibility and not their purpose.
2: Oh, oh, powerfully said. Oh, what wise words living out Mm, our Mm. purpose. Well, I just can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you for this time together. And and also thank you, because in a moment you're going to allow us to spend some time with police officer Amina Duckett. Yeah. And for that, we are incredibly grateful. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for this time. And we so look forward to hearing Sheepdog, the audio play. And as Melissa said, it is Amina's play. So it's, there's just, we thank you. We thank you for doing that heavy lifting because it is a powerful role and you stepped into it so beautifully. So thank you for this time.
3: Thank you so much, Teresa. And thank you to CATF for the opportunity.
2: Good evening. Today, we have the opportunity to interview police officer Amina Duckett, who works with the Cleveland Police Force. Good evening, Officer Duckett. Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. I believe that you were born in Cleveland. Is that correct?
3: You are correct.
2: How did you make the decision to become a police officer? Do you come from a family of law enforcement officers?
3: I do not had a decision that it came kind of fast. I just it just made sense. Mm. It made sense about what I could contribute. I I think, you know, you see what options you have and I hated school (laughs) (laughs) and it it was something to get through, but I always knew I was meant to make a difference in some type of way. And if I was going to have to go to a a lot more school to get it, that wasn't going to be me. But I feel as if when I sat down and I looked at my options mm-hmm. and, and, and where I could make the most difference and where my strengths lie, I'm a thinker, um, I'm, I'm organized and, and I, and I like to make, you know, make sense of things. So I sat down, I, I said, I, I could go to more school. That wasn't going to happen. I could maybe pursue the military.
2: Mm. Do you think it's important for police officers to live in the communities in which they serve?
3: Oh,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Because you're not going to really understand if somebody on the corner is on the corner because that's what they always do or because they're doing something illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't live there, if you don't see the you know movements and goings of the people that are around you, then everybody's a suspect. Everybody's potential to to be doing something sinister. And that's not necessarily the case when you live there. You're like, oh, that's Leroy on the corner. That's the watermelon man who sells watermelons on Tuesdays and Fridays. You know, you know those things, in a way that then doesn't feel so, uh, you know, you you're not on guard all the time. You can find ways to, and then you can learn. You know, if you live in the community, then you learn um, by going, using the local, talking to local people in the stores, and and because you because you are a part of that community as well. So you're using those places. You're not just going there to, you're not seen as a, as a presence. You're seen as a person in the community who wants to serve it. Mm. Um, and I think that's a difference. Um, when you don't live in the community, you are police presence. When you live in it, you are, uh, someone who is, um, serving and protecting the community that you live in.
2: Um, uh, so I understand that you are a patrol cop. Is that true? Oh, <laughs>
3: yeah, you know a lot of us i mean women in general we we're relegated to you know desk jobs, working in the evidence room um but mm-hmm. i you know i I love being on the street. there's something mm-hmm. about being outside and 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 amongst the community and the people and seeing their faces and not just seeing them as names on paper and numbers on paper, you know? Um, and so, yeah, there maybe I probably could count on one hand, Teresa, the amount of mm. <laughs> women and then let alone black women uh, that are be cops and mm-hmm. be cops. Cause they, they want to be cops, you know, not because, you know, not that, cause they're using it as a stepping stone. That's, they're, they're, that's the difference too, because uh, some Cops will, you know, you will work that position because you're looking to move into a a higher place, like working towards being a sergeant or, um, you know, other different levels. But that's not that's not what I wanted. That's not what I want. And um, so I've stayed and be cop for a while, for a, a few few years. And I don't I don't see myself leaving it. I love it
2: and so do you think that there is a world in which it's possible to be both black and blue
3: you know right now i i'm asking myself that question and i think and i and i want to go back and say oh yes please I, I i feel as if you know what what this the the position the 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 mentality of being a beat cop, a cop that's protecting and serving the community, that's something that's always going to be within me. And I do love it. I do believe in it in its purest form. But I think what I'm struggling with right now is when the system doesn't support or or is is flawed you know, and is not, um, is not allowing, uh, the, 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 what this police force was created to do to exist in that way. And so, I I struggle with that. I, I, I don't know if it's possible to be black and blue. What I do know and what I can say is that when i've seen it work the best is when there's a community of black and brown police officers who are empowered to stand up and speak out and are 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 not living in fear of um repercussions from the system and uh I, and i've seen that across the board you know uh I know there's different organizations, even within like the fire department, black firemen um, and, and fire women. And they have organizations and they and they find ways to support each other and have support systems and and find ways to, to, to speak out and speak out about the things and the inequities and injustices they see um, serving the community. Um, and yeah. but I think that when we don't have that and when we are just seen as blue. We do ourselves a disservice.
2: You entered the force at a time, well, we were in a different presidency, the 44th presidency with President (laughs) Obama. And then you've been an officer during the Trump administration. Can you talk to me about the differences in being a police officer in those two different administrations?
3: Yeah, you know, I think there were I think the the big difference, because there were a lot of similarities, ah. I think the big difference is that it wasn't as secretive in the can, Obama administration.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I would say that
3: there were uh, a lot of it felt as if there were a lot of unspoken codes and ways of of dealing and, and speaking about crimes and speaking about black people and uh, minorities in, in, in the police force and um, that we, you know, understood and that were kind of things would happen. They would find there was a, there was an easier way to kind of uh, ignore it. Mm. Um, let it get swept under the rug. Let it be called something or labeled something else and, uh, and it be accepted. And then I feel as if, as we moved into uh, this uh, 44s, 45s <laughs> presidency, uh, it, it was, I feel like the, uh, their level of boldness changed, you know, um, there was a level of uh, more um, fearlessness in the behaviors that we're seeing, especially, in you know, in the police force. I, I, the ways I would hear people talk before would be whispered, um, you know, um, racist comments or, or racial mm-hmm. slurs hidden but they were always there like it wasn't there wasn't a question of was it there or not it wasn't like it just it just appeared it was always there and I think in 45's presidency there was a level of empowerment uh and I saw that in the force I saw that in how
2: people spoke out loud things they would have said in whispers or in hushes and I'd heard that you are in a relationship with someone on the force um, would you be willing to talk to us about that? Teresa <laughs> Well, I didn't know if it was appropriate, but no. I just in terms of we really want to get to know you and what it is like for you and this this adds a whole other level <laughs> to our conversation. You're right.
3: You're very mm-hmm. right. And I and I appreciate it. I I, I think you wouldn't mind. I yes. Well and we're and we were partners where, you know, he's he's moved up. Um, but um, Officer Tilson and I, after working together, have uh, started seeing each other.
2: Oh, and how and how did that come about?
3: I feel like he's like the Steve Urkel in my life. He kind of wore <laughs> me down. <laughs> oh, he did. I I came
2: up. I had so many.
3: I had so many reasons why this should not be a thing our job being one of them
2: yes I was going to ask you did you receive any type of flack or shade because you were in fact seeing someone that you worked with
3: you know it's so funny because people see each other all the time And, and but you know it's 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 not it's it's usually like, oh, somebody in the office and, and and a cop, you know, there's some it's it's not always necessarily the same the people you work with, but it happens. It happens. I mean, it happens in every job, I assume, because you're these are the people you're seeing all the time. But I will say, um, you know, I'm a very private person. And mm-hmm. so I was we were both uh, very discreet and didn't start letting people know until we weren't working together. Um, but I did. Yes. Yes.
2: <laughs> mm, all right.
3: I, I got a little so- ra- razzed here and there, but I, like I said, I'm private and people know that I, I, I don't play those games. So mm-hmm. we, when we are at work, we're at work and now we don't work together. So it's, it's, I like it that way.
2: Um, and I have not mentioned this to the listeners. They might not know this, but Officer Tilson is white and you're black. And I wondered, is this your first interracial relationship? And if so, did you ever think that you would be in an interracial relationship? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was very quick answer. Mm,
3: absolutely not. So you said he wore you down. He wore me he wore down. You. I told you, Teresa. Steve Urkel. <laughs> Um, but, you know, Uh, he wore me down in in a, in a really good way, in a great way with truth and with honesty. Um, but yeah, I I would, no.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Do you think, I would say for both of you, or I, you can't speak for officer, it doesn't for Ryan, but for yourself, do you feel that being in this relationship has made you more aware of any hidden biases that you might have?
3: Oh, Yeah.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, because I didn't, you know
3: <laughs> Ron, his story, his and I, you know, don't wanna put his business all out there in the street, but seeing him and working with him, I I realized I had a certain level of assumptions about who he was and where he came from and and that is none of that was true. <laughs> mm. And um I realized we had more in common than not in uh, in our upbringing and and sometimes, you know, I feel like in comparison to some of the stories and things that he's seen and experienced, I got the Cosby Show family going on <laughs> mm. um, that all jokes aside, I think that there's a level of you know when we give ourselves the opportunity to see people as people and love them for, um, the humans that they are, we'd be surprised at the similarities that we do have. That's not to say that race is ignored. Uh, it's just something that I have to sometimes, uh, put down for a moment so I can really see the person behind that race.
2: Mm, Yes. No, thank you for that. Um, when did you know you wanted to become a police officer?
3: Mm, that's a good question. I think I knew, I think I always kind of knew. I mean, mm. I loved, <laughs> I loved TV shows like In the Heat of the Night. Like that was oh, my show. Oh,
2: I remember that. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I
3: used to love that show. And I, and I loved, too, like, the way that they were, you know, they were dealing with, you know, this again, you know, South, Deep South, there, and mm. the level of racism, and 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 then just like crimes that were uh, happening because of the race, the racist system. They were seeking to, you know, work in and and change. I just there was something about that. I love the way that you know those stories Came together and those crimes were solved, and there's something compelling about that. So Mm. that I knew that about myself, but then uh, I think the moment that I really knew is when I, you know, I saw my dad uh, got pulled over by a bad cop, Mm. and uh,
2: I hope everything went all right. I hope he was not injured.
3: He was not. He was one well, of the lucky ones. physically, you yeah. never
2: know about the emotional of course. suffering that happens with that. Mm-hmm.
3: And I think seeing that effect on him, and more importantly, that he was not you know, worried for himself. He's more worried for us. We were all in the car. Oh, um, wow. In that moment. And, you know, for something very pedestrian. You know his plate was it was on it just had was partially on, mm-hmm. and so they pulled him over, and this one cop really gave him put him through all the paces I mean he just was looking for anything to take him in and couldn't find it, and so we weren't, but it you know that seeing that experiencing that seeing the effects um uh, of that on my dad, you know I said i I I want to change that. I want. I don't want that story for any other black man. Mm-hmm. And so when I see it, you know, when I when they see me coming up, there's a level of, you know, there, there's apprehension because I'm, I'm 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 a cop, and then they they hear me talk, they know what that I'm from the area. They, they you know you can hear that, in and 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 part of the community, and then there's a just a level of feeling scene that I hope I provide and representation that I hope I provide. And so that makes me feel good.
1: Mm,
2: And you do, you do provide that. Do you think that we can build trust between the police and then the communities that they serve? You living in Cleveland at times, you said there's this hesitancy in terms of how people approach you, but do you think that there are ways for us to build trust?
3: Oh, of course. Yes, definitely. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. If you could make then any changes to the system, what would you do in terms of how police officers are trained and how communities are prepared to have law enforcement officers with them? mm -hmm. If you could make any changes, what changes would you make?
3: Well, the first, I, I think in the training, I think we all need some therapy. (laughs) Mm. Mm. I you know I I was late to the therapy game but I have benefited from it and Uh um it's helped me in my relationship admitting that yeah Mm. no it definitely helped me in my relationship and um I think that we have one of the most stressful jobs ever and to not have across the board free therapy for all of us in in the in the police force is it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. You know, people wonder why football players get paid millions of dollars a year it's because they, they're likely to hurt themselves at any given moment they step on the field. And so there's a provision in the profession because it recognizes the risks they take. And then you look at police officers and 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 those provisions aren't the same. So I think you know, recognizing all of the things emotional and physical they're involved. Having things in place for us to take care of ourselves, not just physically but emotionally as well, uh, are, are as a change I would make in the training. And then in in the community, I think that trust. You know, way we we move towards building that trust is I I think precincts need to be aware of the communities they serve and have people who look like the communities reflect that working the beats, Mm -hmm. working in the, in the front office, in the desk, recruiting people and and making opportunities. And I I don't know what you call that, you know, affirmative action or not, but I think that it definitely is, 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 is sourcing the community to serve the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that there's, there's power in that. And trust can be then start to be built. I mean, it's still, it's going to take steps and time, but I think that I know when I come into a room and I see people who look like me, I breathe a little easier.
2: Mm, yeah. So. Oh, thank you for that. And do you think that you'll always want to stay in Cleveland?
3: I, I want to stay. It's my home. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there are times when you have to evaluate what is it about home and where can I make a home? What are these qualities I'm holding on to that's not germane to the area, right? I can, I, can, I can feel this or I can have this somewhere else. And if it means that I can have a level of peace and, and really feel like I'm making a difference. You know, sometimes I question, am I making a difference here?
2: Well, I believe you are making a difference. And we want to thank you for taking time so that we could get to know more about you. We believe it is important that we know the officers who are serving our communities. Mm -hmm. So, Officer Duckett, thank you for taking this time. We appreciate you.
3: Thank you so much, Teresa.
2: Thank you. Good evening, everyone.
1: We just got to hear from Mixolydia and Amina in the same episode, in the same little podcast. And I'm I'm over here stunned. Trent, I'm just going to hand it over to you because I am, I am still in shock and awe.
0: Yeah, that was really great. And that'll do it for this episode of Unmuted, sponsored by Marjorie Weingold. Just a reminder that we have another street party in Shepherdstown coming up this Friday, July 16th, so please check out our website for more details.
1: I had a blast at our party last week.
0: Yeah, it was a ton of fun.
1: Yeah, and so join us to make the party even better. We're going to be in front of the Marinoff Theater parking lot again. And just email us at at org to let us know that you're coming. And while you're online, go ahead and go over to broadwayondemand.com, search Sheepdog in their little search bar, and get a ticket to the
0: Sheepdog audio drama. Thanks again for tuning in please check out CATF's website, CATF.org. Find us on Facebook at CATF at SU. Or on Instagram
1: at Think Theater, and that is theater with an E-R. Subscribe to get notifications for new Unmuted Podcast episodes and tell all of your friends how much you love listening to the podcast during your commute or doing laundry or during your workout or whenever you listen to podcasts and tell them to subscribe too.
0: And don't forget, If it's not a new play, it's not CATF.